Matthew chapter 5 as we continue in our series of the Sermon on the Mount, which is part of Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Matthew chapter 5, whoa, there's light. Starting in verse 43, follow along as I read Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you that ye may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them who love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the tax collectors the same? And if ye greet your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the heathen so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father who is in heaven, is perfect. These verses, which many think are the very heart of the Sermon on the Mount, deal with Christian love. The teaching of Christ in these verses gives to us a Christian ethic that is anchored in the very character of God. We are to love others, not according to man's standards, but according to the very nature of God. And the love that is enjoined in these verses is a love that only God is capable of. Let me repeat that. The love that is shown or that is commanded for us to have is a love that only God is capable of. And if we are to love even our enemies in this way, it has to be by a love that is planted in us and produced in us by God himself. To love as God loves is impossible for any man apart from God's help. These verses give to us the last example that Jesus will use to show how our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. The last example to contrast the true righteousness of one who is a citizen of the kingdom of God with the false righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. The last example where Jesus will correct the false teaching which was common and characterized that day. The theme of the previous section, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which we just finished, is now continued from a positive perspective. In the previous section, we were told not to retaliate, not to hate, not to have this vengeful attitude. In other words, what we must not do. Here in this section, we are told the positive aspect, what we must do. 
And what the common teaching of that day was, and this is my first point, is they were teaching that there should be a differentiation between people, and that was actually encouraged. Differentiation between people was encouraged. That was the common teaching of the day. Notice what it says. You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. So they were teaching that it's okay to differentiate between people. And so, as a result of that, limited love was condoned. Limited love was condoned. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees based this upon Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, where it says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so they took that verse, and they saw children of your people loving your neighbor as yourself, and those are the only people you had to love. And so our duty, according to the scribes and the Pharisees, was to love our neighbor. And the reason, of course, is because he's our neighbor, but more importantly, because God was commanding it. The how we were to love was actually left out in their teaching. If you read Leviticus 19, 18, let me read it again. How are we to love our neighbor? You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. They actually left that part out. That's the how. How do we love ourselves? What is self-love? How do we love ourselves? Well, we love ourselves fervently. We can actually say that we probably don't love anybody as fervently as we love ourselves. Unsaved man, I'm talking. We love ourselves actively. We love ourselves habitually. We love ourselves permanently. We take all of our interests into consideration, and we're concerned about our welfare. We seek our own welfare. We rejoice in seeking our own welfare. Self-love is real, it is active, and, of course, it's very noticeable. Now, this passage in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, is repeated often in the New Testament. It's repeated in Matthew 19, 19. It's repeated in Matthew 22, 39. It's repeated in Mark 12, 31. It's repeated in 10, uh, Luke 10, 27. It's repeated in Romans 13, 9. It's also repeated in Galatians 5, 14. And I'll read one of the verses. It's repeated in James chapter 2 and verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. So over and over and over again, this verse is repeated in the New Testament. Now, what is a neighbor? Literally, the word means the one who is near. The Pharisees, as was usual for the Pharisees, explained away the strict demands of the law, and they limited the word neighbor. The first century narrowed the usage of the word neighbor to friends 
or other close people or those related to you. Now, some were closer to the truth, and they saw a neighbor as one that was an Israelite. In other words, a fellow countryman. The restriction, of course, is seen in the verse. You've heard it has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. The restriction is seen in the contrast. Neighbor was anyone who treated you well or was friendly disposed towards you, contrasted with an enemy. Now, under the Old Testament, the word neighbor had two meanings. It had a general and wide uh, meaning to it, mean, meaning anyone with whom you came into contact with. In other words, the idea would be when they used the word neighbor and love your neighbor, it meant to respect your fellow man. For instance, compare it with the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verses 16 and 17. You would not, I hope, restrict the word neighbor and say it would be okay to covet someone's wife or house if they were not your neighbor or say it was okay to bear false witness against anyone. I mean, read the Ten Commandments. The verses 16 and 17 speak twice about neighbor. So is it okay then to covet your enemy's wife or his house or his maidservant? Or is it okay to bear false witness against your enemy? No, the word neighbor there has a very general and wide or broad application. And so those commands are to be understood to apply to all of mankind. There's no limitation. But there was also a narrow and specific way the term was understood, and it would have the idea of anyone who was near to us by ties of blood or habitation. For instance, in Exodus chapter 11 and verse 2, the Egyptians were called the Israelites' neighbor. They were supposed to go and ask their neighbor for jewels and gold and silver and things like that. And so it had a very narrow and specific way it was used as well. But here is what they were hearing from their religious teachers. Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. So they were condoning a hateful attitude towards those you deemed to be your enemy. Now here's the thing. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say this, that it's okay to hate your enemy. This was an invention, was a false interpretation of the scribes and Pharisees. It actually, you could say it was a false inference based upon Leviticus 19.18. This must have been the popular way among the Jews of Jesus' day to express their responsibility to God's law, especially the second table of the law. They added this part about the enemy, which shifted the emphasis from the original intention and the teaching of the law. The Jews took the word neighbor to be exclusive. They thought it meant we are to love only our neighbors, which gave them 
they thought, the right and even the duty to hate their enemies. An enemy to them was someone who was not a neighbor, which gave them the permission to hate them. One's attitude, one's behavior toward another then became, it was dependent on who that person was. And so love was reserved for those you got along with. Now, do you have anybody in your family you don't get along with? According to the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, you didn't have to love them. And so a sharp contrast was set up between friend and foe. So they interpreted it to mean love the one and hate the other. And it created a mindset in which it was easy to differentiate. Remember my point, they were actually condoning the idea of making a differentiation between people. It created a mindset in which it was easy to differentiate between between people and treat them accordingly. And so the big question was, who's my neighbor? And so it erected a barrier or a wall of separation, and especially, especially between Jew and Gentile. And we see that played out in the New Testament. But it didn't stop there. What about the good Israelites versus the bad Israelites? What about tax collectors? What about harlots? What about those who know the law and those who don't know the law? Secular history is full of stories, and secular history teaches us how bitterly the Jews hated the Gentiles. The Gentiles, in turn, despised the Jews. And there was indeed a middle wall of partition between the Jews and the Gentiles. There was intense animosity between the Jew and the Gentile. Folks, this is why John 3.16 is so significant. And you need to understand that John is writing to Jewish people, and he's trying to tell us, not that God loves every single individual in the world. That's not what he's saying. For God so loved the world, and when a Jew heard the word world, he heard what? Gentile. Now, does that include everybody? Yeah, you were either a Jew or a Gentile. But the idea is that that verse is so significant because God loved not just the Jew, but God loved Gentiles as well. And he sent his son into the world to save Jew and Gentile alike. And Paul struggled to make that message known so that the middle wall of partition would be broken down. And we see the struggle in the early church about accepting the Gentiles as heirs of salvation. And it shows us the depth that the, of this hatred on, on, on the part of the Jews. Commentator on the book of Matthew by the name of Hendrickson said, and I quote, in such an atmosphere, it was impossible for hatred to starve. It had plenty to feed on. 
Let me give you some examples. There was a, a monastic community that lived by the Dead Sea. And they found a saying where they actually taught, and I quote, love the brothers, hate the outsiders. Love the brothers, hate the outsiders. And they actually found this saying of a Pharisee, and I quote, if a Jew sees a Gentile fallen into the sea, let him by no means lift him out, for it is written, and here they're going to base it on scripture, for it is written, thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor, but this man is not thy neighbor. An actual saying by the Pharisees. So identifying who your neighbor was, was an issue in that day. Was my neighbor just a fellow Israelite? That in, did that include proselytes? In fact, look at Luke chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. Luke chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. Jesus was even asked this question. We'll start in verse 25, Luke chapter 10. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he, and he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. Verse 29, But he desiring to justify himself, said unto Jesus, who's my neighbor? In other words, who do I have to love like I love myself? Jesus then taught what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. Just to answer this question, who's my neighbor? So let's just read it since we're here. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his raiment, wounded him, to, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance, there came down a certain priest. Now here's a religious man, a man who knows the word of God. And when he saw him, what did he do? passed by on the other side. That's not love. That's hate. That's contempt. Now, we don't know why the priest passed by the other way. I mean, I've studied this passage of Scripture, and conjecture can be given. You know, he didn't want to make himself unclean. He was on his way to worship the Lord, and he didn't want to make himself unclean. That's a possibility. But we're not told. But for some reason, he saw the man, saw the dire need, and he went by on the other side, didn't even want to come in contact with this guy. And likewise, a Levite, another religious person, when he was at the place, came and looked at him and passed by on the other side. Man, how do you do that? Especially if you know what God has taught in his word, like a Levite would have. But a certain Samaritan, 
Now, I'm going to get into some more information about Samaritans, but likely the man that was wounded and beaten and left for half dead on the road was probably a Jewish person. And the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. He came where he was, and when he saw him, had compassion on him. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. Here's a Samaritan. Likely taking care of a Jewish, Jewish person, giving of his time, giving of his money, giving of his effort. Would you say that's love? Yeah. Then Jesus asks the question, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? You notice how Jesus just turned that whole question around? It's no longer who is your neighbor but who can I be a neighbor to? Jesus taught that one's neighbor is anyone who you are in a position to help. Even an enemy, again, Jew and Samaritan, is your neighbor. The Samaritans and Jews, they were enemies. They had no dealings with the Samaritans, the Jews didn't. They wouldn't even talk to them. In fact, if you're familiar with Bible customs and the lands and things like that, the Jewish people, when traveling from the northern parts of Israel, going to Jerusalem, would not pass through Samaria. They would cross over the River Jordan by the Sea of Galilee, pass over on that side of Samaria, so they weren't traveling through that territory. And when they got past that territory of Samaria, then they would cross back over the Jordan. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. They called the Samaritans half-breeds and dogs. And so we should not ask, who is my neighbor? But what Jesus is teaching there is that we should act as a neighbor to the one in need. The question is, who can I be a neighbor to? So love your neighbor is the sympathetic concern, the actual care we should show towards others. This has been and continues to be God's standard for our relationship with other people. I want to just take a moment and cover some problems to be on guard for. Because here we have, I mean, think about it. This is what the Jewish people in the time of Christ were being taught by their religious leaders, the ones who knew the law. You, lo you shall love your, uh, your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what they were being taught. Now, I would sure hope that I ever said something like that from this pulpit, that Matt and Steve and Larry and Constantine would grab me by the nap of my neck and throw me out the door and say, never come back. Be gentle, though. 
We need to be discerning people. And some of the things that we should be on guard for when interpreting the Bible, because the rabbis were guilty of false interpretation. These are what the, guilt, the rabbis were guilty of, how they perverted God's true teaching. And that's what Jesus has been doing since verse 21 of this chapter, is correcting the false teaching that was common in that day. Here's the first thing. Just an, I mean, this is what the, the scribes and the Pharisees were guilty of. This is how they were perverting God's true teaching. Number one misinterpretation and it usually it was misinterpretation based on a failure to take all of God's word into consideration verses in the Bible are not written isolated from the rest of the Bible Exodus chapter 23 and the scribes and the Pharisees should have known this Exodus 23 verses 4 to 5 say this if thou meet thine enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. Does that sound like hate or love? Come on, you can say it. Is it hate or love? That's love. If thou see the donkey of him that hateth thee, lying under its burden, and, and wouldest forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. Is that hate or love? So what they would do is they would misinterpret God's word by lifting verses out of their context and isolating it from the rest of God's word. Number two, they put restrictions where God never put restrictions. They restricted the word neighbor, for instance, to mean only those who were close to you, only those who were blood relatives, things like that. And so they restricted the word neighbor when God never restricted the word. I mean, you look at the Ten Commandments. I think I pointed that out. And so in this case, they limited the use of the word neighbor. Next, the drawing of seemingly logical but false inferences. The drawing of seemingly logical but false inferences. Since they limited the word neighbor, we have another false interpretation then based upon that, and that is since you only need to love those who are your closest neighbors or those who are related to you, hence the logical but false inference is, well, I don't have to love this person over here. Paul deals with some logical but false inferences in the book of Romans. For instance, in the KJV, he uses the word, the phrase, God forbid. You know those passages? Shall we continue in grace, or shall we continue in sin, that grace may abound? And that would seem to be a logical conclusion to the argument beforehand, but Paul says, God forbid. May it never be. And so they would draw some logical conclusions that were based upon false inferences. Next, they would leave out parts of verses. 
as instance, thou shalt love thy neighbor. What did they leave out? As yourself. They left that out. They omitted that part of the verse. And, of course, that's a very important part of the verse. They knew the whole scripture, but they only taught part of it. I listened to a preacher one time. I actually sat in the auditorium and listened to, listened to him preach through John 17. And he got to a particular verse, and he skipped a portion of it. He was preaching on verse 2. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Who are the ones that are given? They're the elect. You can't come to any other conclusion. He skipped that part of the verse. And he went on because he didn't believe in election. So be wary for preacher skips parts of verses or leave things out. Next, the scribes and the Pharisees would add to verses by interpretation or seemingly logical inferences. And here, they added to the verse in Leviticus 19.18 by putting, hate your enemy. They thought that that was a logical inference since a neighbor is only those who live next to you or your blood relatives or those who are kindly disposed towards you. And so they drew the conclusion, wrongly so, that then you can hate your enemy. Folks, understand this. False teachers will cater to and pander to the corrupt inclinations and sinfulness of their hearers. The message is adapted so as not to offend the sensibility of the hearers. The teaching is either general in nature, so not to offend or keep the sinner from doing what he wants to do. In our country, our world, the Internet, is full of people who do these things to draw you in. So the rabbis taught the Jews they must love their fellow Jew, or however they wanted to restrict that word, neighbor, and they were bound to hate those who were not, meaning, in most cases, the Gentiles. That pandered to national pride. It gave the corrupt inclinations of the Jewish people freedom to move. Tacitus said, and I quote, they readily show compassion to their own countrymen, speaking of the Jews, but they bear to all others the hatred of an enemy. And he charged them with, and I quote, hatred to the human race. Speaking about the Jews, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 to 16, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets 
and have persecuted us, and they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And I think about the time when Paul was preaching. I can't remember where it was at. It's in the book of Acts. He's preaching to the, to the Jewish people, primarily there in the synagogue. They loved what he was saying. And the next Sunday, a whole bunch of Gentiles showed up. And all of a sudden, they said Paul was blaspheming, and they were contradicting him because they didn't want the Gentiles to hear the same message that they were getting. Folks, we need to be careful. We need to be discerning. Now, of course, it was a little more difficult for the Jewish people during that time because they didn't have a copy of the scriptures that they could read at home like you have. And I often told people, the people that I pastored down in Lewistown, you check out everything I say. I don't mind that you check it out. I don't mind that you're verifying that what I'm saying is actually God's word. Do that. But be discerning. I recommend that everyone get a good book on how to interpret the Bible. How to interpret the Bible. Because we have well-meaning even preachers standing in the pulpit misinterpreting the Bible and preaching things that they ought not. What I like here is we have the last, in verse 44, of Jesus saying, this is what you've heard. This is what you have been taught. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus says, but I say unto you, so Jesus is correcting the corrupted teaching, the false interpretation of that day. He's not setting himself over up against the law. He's refuting the errors of his day. And remember that that word I, the pronoun I, is emphatic in the Greek. It is an emphatic pronoun, and it's giving emphasis to what is said and who is saying it. In each of the previous sections, the Pharisees had limited the scope or lowered the standard in their corrupted teaching of God's law. They had so distorted the true interpretation so that they could make it easier to obey, but it also made them look good. It was to these narrow-minded, exclusivistic Jews and in the midst of an intolerant environment that Jesus was speaking. Proper understanding of neighbor and the law, Leviticus 19.34. The scribes and the Pharisees knew this verse. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you. Did you get that? The stranger, usually a Gentile. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This was the clear teaching of Scripture. 
which the Pharisees and the scribes ignored. Jesus is not restricting the word neighbor to friends and acquaintances and those who live next to you. He includes enemies in it. He is purging the love your neighbor as yourself law from the corrupt teaching of the day. Jesus is teaching who our neighbor is in Luke chapter 10 as we read. We're to help our enemies. That's love in action. Love always expresses itself in action. Love is need-oriented. Love is action-based. Look at Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. Recompense to no man, evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceable, peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, what do you do? Love is action-based, need-oriented. If he thirst, what do you do? Give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the idea of heaping coals of fire on his head is not that you're going to make him burn with anger. The idea is if somebody's fire went out in that day, they would have a metal tin that they would put on their head, and you'd be putting coals into that metal tin so that it could restart their fire. You were doing something good for them. Be not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, love your enemy. Love expresses itself in action. It is need-oriented. Look at 1 John 3, 16 to 18. 1 John chapter 3. Verses 16 to 18. By this perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whosoever hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his compassions from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? The answer to that is what? Doesn't. The love of God does not dwell in a person, in, a, in a, someone who claims to be a Christian and see that his brother has a need and he doesn't help him. God's love does not dwell in that person. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Love is action-oriented. It is need-oriented. And we're to love our enemies, an enemy of you personally. Think about we're, It's contrasting God's love dwelling in us. We are to love 
as God loved those who were his enemies by their sinful lifestyles. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for them. Because the Bible says that's the kind of person we were before we came to Christ. We were God's enemies. God's love is a love that embraces even our enemies. Now, when Jesus spoke this, it must have been a shock to those who were listening. One commentator said, and I quote, the conclusion remains that the first one who has taught mankind to see the neighbor in every human being and therefore to encounter every human being in love was Jesus, end quote. To the Pharisees and the scribes who were proud, prejudiced, judgmental, spiteful, hateful, and vengeful men, this no doubt sounded foolish. Love your enemies? They no doubt thought that to not hate those who deserve to be hated, that wouldn't be righteousness. Jesus said, you're going to be part of my kingdom? You're going to love your enemies. What's an enemy? An enemy is the ones who might be persecuting us. An enemy might be those who are haters of righteousness. An enemy might be someone who doesn't care for us because we're trying to live by the principles of God's word. Jesus is refuting the false inference of hating your enemies, and he says you're to love them. That's divine love. This word for love here, love your enemies, is the Greek word agape. Agape. It's divine love. There are four words for love in the Greek language. And the usage of each is always significant. For instance, there's the Greek word eros, which meant sexual love. This word the Bible never uses. We get our English word erotic from it. In Bible times, the sexual love of the Greeks, which this word represented, had become very perverted, very debased. Hence, this word was rejected by the biblical writers. Second word I think I'm pronouncing it right, uh, storge, S-T-O-R-G-E, was family love. It's the love that exists between children and their parents, and the love of parents for their children. This word, again, is not used in the Bible, though it could be. The third word is philia, which means strong affection. We get our word philanthropy, love of men, and the word, or the city, Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love. This was the word that Peter used when Jesus questioned him in John chapter 21, verses 15 to 17. Remember when post-resurrection appearance, Jesus appeared and he singles out Peter, primarily because he had denied Christ, but he says, Simon Peter, lovest thou me? The word that Jesus uses is agape. 
Simon Peter, do you agape me? Do you have that divine love? Which I'll explain in a second here. And Peter responds, Lord, you know that I like you. I am strongly, I have this strong affection for you. Philea. Jesus asks him the second time, Simon, some, uh, Peter, do you agape me? Peter again responds, Lord, you know I philea you. I like you. I have this strong affection for you. And finally, Jesus, the third time. It's like he, he stoops to Peter's need. And Jesus uses the word philea. Peter, do you, do you at least really philea me? Do you really like me? And Peter responds, Lord, thou knowest all things. You know that I philea you. It's an interesting exchange in the Greek. But Peter was so devastated for his lack of love for Christ in the denials. He could not raise himself up to that agape love. And Jesus then responds, for pastor, this passage is just incredible. I have a work for you to do. Go feed my sheep. And then I think about, I fast forward a little bit to the time that Jesus took that responsibility and stood in front of the leaders that crucified Christ. And under the power and presence of the Holy Spirit within him, he was able to point to them. He said, you crucified the Messiah. What a change in Peter's life. I'm sorry. This philea, this strong affection, this type of love, it is the highest love that natural man is capable of. It is the highest love that man by himself can ever have. And then there's agape love. Divine love. It's the love of God. This is a never-changing love. Whereas philea can change. This is a love that loves even when the object, like me, is unlovable. It is a love that loves even when the object is hateful or even an enemy. It is a love that loves for no reason at all. It is a giving love. It is a love of action. It is a love that keeps loving when there are reasons that would discourage it. 
It is a love that loves when there is no possibility of being loved back on the same level. If you want to read that definition of agape love, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is a kind of love that seeks another's welfare, and it always, always, always involves action. And let me say this, to love this way is a choice. It's not an emotion. Agape love is a choice. This love is not liking. It's not an emotion. There's a difference between the two. Liking is to have an emotional attachment or feeling towards somebody else. We cannot like everyone, but we are commanded to love everyone. This agape love is not a matter of the feelings. It is a matter, get this, of the will. It is a choice to love. That makes it possible even when we do not like someone. We can express this God-like love in action even when we don't feel like it. I remember, and I'll get the details wrong, but I, I think it was Fanny Crosby. No, that doesn't sound right. Some Christian lady, I, I'm thinking it was Fanny Crosby. Christian lady who had been persecuted by the Germans. And she was doing conferences, and one of the German soldiers who was actually involved in persecuting her and injuring her and doing all sorts of unspeakable things to her had gotten saved and met her at this conference. And he came up to introduce himself to her. And, of course, all those memories just flooded her mind, flooded her soul. And she just wanted to turn and run. And he held out his hand. And she had to make a choice. That was an enemy. And by God's grace she was able to raise her hand and shake that soldier's hand. I, I'm sorry, I wish I could remember who it was. That's who it was, Corey Tenboom. I don't know why Fanny Crosby stuck in my mind. You've ever heard that story before? That is agape love in action. It is a matter of the will. It is a matter of choice. And folks, that's what we're celebrating here this morning. Because it's the kind of love that God demonstrated in sending his son to die for us as his enemies. And almost every time when God's love is spoken about, the illustration or example of Christ's death is also given in the same context. This tells us that the biblical writers thought that the supreme example of the love of God was especially seen on the cross. The cross is the measure of God's love. 
the supreme example of God's love towards sinners. For God so loved the world, John 3.16. Romans 5.8, but God commendeth, he showed his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I have to stop. I got much more here. When Jesus says, but I say unto you, love your enemies. The best example of that for us is God himself who loved us when we were unlovable. When we were enemies. When we broke his law. When we shook our fist up to heaven. When we took his name in vain. God loved us, and he sent his son to die for us. Now, as I was thinking about the Lord's table this morning, Brother Stephen and Matt, if you would come. You don't yet have the elements. But I ask you to go ahead and get up and get those at this point. God has loved us with a love that is, you can't explain it. What we're going to celebrate together, the manifestation of God's love. And I would ask you this morning, don't let this be something you just do out of habit. When I come to the Lord's table, I just kind of give you some insight. I think about the crucifixion. I think about God pouring out his wrath on his own son in my place. And I thank him for drawing me to himself so that I could be saved, because I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. And I think about what it cost my Savior for me to have my sins forgiven. We're going to be partaking of the bread, which represents his broken body for us. His body was broken. I have a thing that I wrote many, many years ago about telling the story of the crucifixion from the perspective of the cross, as if the cross could talk. And it helped me to think through everything Jesus went through in that awful crucifixion. And if you think about the crucifixion from just the pain and suffering it caused Christ, that's pretty intense. But the two things I think about when I think about the cross 
is that for the first time in all of eternity, Jesus Christ was separated from the Father and had to undergo all the billows of his wrath against sin. And he did that for me and for you.